And so without further ado, I'm going to introduce our speaker. Um, Chani Desai is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Uh, Desai has written articles on settler colonial economies, research in solidarity, security regimes, Palestinian oral history, cultural production, memory and archives published in the Journal of Palestine Studies, Race and Class, Curriculum Inquiry, Decolonization, Indigeneity, Education and Society, and several anthologies. She co-edited a special issue on decolonization and Palestine for the Journal of Decolonization. She is the principal investigator on a Shirk Insight Development Grant that explores global histories of third world internationalism through the work of cultural producers and the infrastructures of dissent and solidarity they built. She is working on her first book tentatively titled Revolutionary Circuits of Liberation, the Radical Tradition of Palestinian Resistance Culture and Internationalism. And um, she is also the host of the Liberation Pedagogy podcast. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for having me. So uh, I just want to say hello and welcome to everyone. Um, thank you for being here. And um, today I am going to be speaking to you um, about um, settler colonialism across uh, two geographies. Um, the focus will be on Canada and then um, um, Israel and Palestine. And um, before I begin, I, I just want to acknowledge um, that um, I'm speaking to you from the Dish with One Spoon territory um, and on the lands of the Anishinaabe, the Huron-Windat and the Seneca. And um, I tend to um, particularly acknowledge the lands that we're on when um, speaking about settler colonialism um, here or in Palestine. In February 2020, tactical units of the militarized uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, invaded the lands of the Wet'suwet'en, a First Nations people composed of five clans that live in the interior of British Columbia. The Wet'suwet'en, some of whom the RCMP arrested, were resisting a Supreme Court of Canada injunction ordering them to evacuate their ancestral lands to make way for the construction of the coastal gasoline pipeline. On 7 February, the RCMP raided Gidimden camp before moving on to the Unistotin as land protectors held a ceremony honoring their ancestors as well as missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit people. Monday the 10th, February 2020, marked a particularly powerful moment of anti-colonial resistance as Unistotin matriarchs and land defenders announced that reconciliation was dead and set the Canadian flag alight in a cremation, in a cremation ritual. Reconciliation is a process initiated by the federal government of Canada to repair the damaged political relationship between the Crown and Indigenous nations. For the latter, reconciliation is associated with a form of healing from the violence of settler colonialism. In a refusal of the ongoing colonization of the lands that the Wet'suwet'en um, and other Indigenous people across Turtle Island live on, the five Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs rejected the construction of the pipeline as the repositories of the authority in the unceded territory by virtue of indigenous governance structures and customary law processes predating Canadian settler colonialism, 
the chiefs refused to consent to the state or the industry accessing their territory, whose sovereignty was affirmed in the 1997 Delgamuk versus British Columbia court case. To protest the government's violation of Bootsuitsun law, mass uprisings took place across the country and direct actions were staged to shut down the Canadian state. Blocking critical infrastructure such as railways, highways, bridges, ports, city streets, and entryways to legislative buildings and political offices um, took place. Protesters sought to disrupt supply chains, the economy, and settler governance. Social media posts with the hashtag Wet'suwet'en Strong, Shut Down Canada, and Reconciliation is Dead flooded cyberspace. Rallying, ra rallies numbering in the thousands were held, and Palestinians and Palestine solidarity activists throughout Canada, also referred to as Turtle Island, participated in various direct and indirect actions in solidarity with the Indigenous struggle. At around the same time the Indigenous nations were resisting this colonial encroachment within Canada, Palestinians were protesting the deal of the century, devised by Donald Trump and his administration as a so-called Middle East peace plan. Released on January 28, 2020, the plan was described by legal scholar Nura Arakat as an Israeli plan that consolidates all of Israel's colonial takings. Impose on Palestinians under duress, Arakat has said, it would be on the ground tantamount to an apartheid regime. In this presentation, I will discuss the resurgence of Indigenous Palestine solidarity that occurred during the Wet'suwet'en protest against the construction of the coastal gasoline pipeline in Canada, contemporaneously with the release of the Trump Middle East peace plan in 2020. More importantly, I provide um, a textured analysis of the similar, albeit distinct histories of settler colonial state formation and the ongoing settler colonialism in, in both contexts, because oftentimes there are a lot of conflations that they're the same when they actually are not. And while settler colonialism is a generative and important analytic, it contends with the theoretical limits of the settler colonial framework, specifically the settler indigenous binary that privileges narratives of settler triumph and native failure, conflates forms of migration with colonization without a full accounting for race and class differences within settler societies and obfuscates the centrality of capitalist demands for land in the development of settler capitalist economies. In addition, the article argues that the use of the settler colonial analytic alone is not sufficient for a complex examination of capitalist violence, whether labor regimes, forced migration or war, race and class resistance or solidarity. So using a relational and comparative lens, the analysis that follows avoids collapsing the specificities of each of these settler geographies by contextualizing um, the specificities of each of the projects. I then shift to do a comparison of anti-colonial resistance, arguing that such resistance um, has, that resistance um, to these settler states, specifically economic disruptions have contributed to accelerating economic crises, particularly at specific historic junctures, impelling both settler states to undertake negotiations with the colonized as a strategy to maintain their capitalist settler sovereignty over the lands they have stolen. Lastly, the analysis sheds light on a praxis of solidarity that has implications for organizing and movement building and joint struggle in the present. And while I'll mobilize the political category, um, uh, the, the, the category indigenous, um, I mobilize the term as a political category. I acknowledge that indigenous, native and aboriginal are colonial impositions. And while they, they may be so at the same time, these colonized communities um, have embraced the terminology of Indigenous to unify 
land-related struggles and resistance to ongoing dispossession, colonization, and erasure. Um, and so going back to um, the, the uh, what had happened um, at Wet'suwet'en territory in 2019, tactical units invaded Wet'suwet'en territory and again in early 2020, which signaled another moment of mass uprisings in Canada. Um, as the Wet'suwet'en and their allies launched protests against the construction of the coastal gasoline pipeline, Palestinians and Palestine solidarity activists mobilized to express their solidarity with indigenous people by calling to shut down the state. Palestinian Youth Movement, the Palestinian Solidarity Collective, the, Pal the Canada-Palestine Association, and the National Committee of the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, the BNC in Palestine, all issued powerful statements that underscored the ways that colonial and imperialist forces undermine indigenous political orders across geographies using similar structures, tactics such as militarized police power and technologies of violence for land theft, territorial expansion, resource extraction, repression and criminalization of resistance. The statements amplified calls for the removal of the RCMP and urged Canada to respect Wet'suwet'en sovereignty and uphold the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Palestinian leftists and their allies also put their bodies on the front lines during the protests. Members from various organizations that participated uh, participated in direct actions such as blockades, rallies, sit-ins, and student walkouts. On February 24th, 2020, after the Supreme Court of Canada issued an, an injunction to dismantle a blockade along a section of the Canadian National Railway tracks, the Ontario Provincial Police raided the Tananaga Mohawk Territory and arrested several people. That day, the Mohawks called for observers and three Palestinian organizations from the GTA sent activists to stand on the front lines with land protectors and act as witnesses. During the first few days of the CN Railway action at Tananaga, a Palestinian flag was hoisted along the Mohawk Hawaitha flags on a truck used by warriors to block the tracks, which is the image you see on the slide. Evoking the similarity of shared colonial experiences, Brandon L. from Tananaga told me, I quote, we proudly hung up the Palestinian flag at the rail blockade because we recognize the Palestinian struggle, end quote. Palestinian activist Nana Nazel, who put her body on the line at three rail blockades, the East and West Lakeshore Lines, Tananaga and Macmillan Yard, reflected on the actions as follows. She says, I quote, shut down Canada meant shut down the Canadian economy. These direct actions were so significant because the Canadian government was scrambling to figure out how to stop it. One thing that was special about the blockade that happened in North Toronto was when the police served the injunction to the demonstrators, they burned it instead of keeping it. I thought that was so wonderful because the Mohawks had burned their own injunction earlier and that was a moment of solidarity, truly, end quote. The Canadian government deployed economic justifications for the numerous injunctions enforced by the police, rationalizing the continuance of systemic oppression, exploitation, and dispossession of Indigenous people by the settler state and industry. The entire economic foundation of the Canadian state is built on the conjoined violence of Indigenous dispossession and genocide, exploitation, slavery, anti-Black racism, and racialized immigrant labor. The indiscriminate power used to criminalize resistance underscored that Canada is a grab, seize, and extract country for the industry. Still, land protectors engaged in a fierce politics of what um, Audra Simpson calls refusal. 
that she says comes with the requirement of having one's political sovereignty acknowledged and upheld and raises the question of legitimacy for those who are usually in the position of recognizing indigenous people. Burning the injunctions was a form of refusal. When settler states, um, when colonial state orders, law and governance and reconciliation at the barrel of the gun were rejected, this resonated with Palestinians who participated in the blockades as they too deeply um, deploy a politics of refusal before forms of colonial and imperialist violence. Rallies against um, the Trump deal of the century plan also took place the week before the Canada shutdown movement. Palestinian activist Hannah Kawas commented that indigenous activists who participated in the Vancouver protests were demonstrating their solidarity with Palestinians against the so-called theft of the century. Also on the West Coast, indigenous land protectors wore kafiyas as they protected Wet'suwet'en territory. A Six Nation warrior, Shiloh Hill, who defended Gidimden told me, I quote, as indigenous people, our way of life goes against the political agenda of the wealthy and elite that want to control our homelands. Many indigenous land defenders wear the kafiyah to show the oppressors that we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters across the globe because we share the same fight seemingly against the same oppressor, end quote. From Palestine to Wet'suwet'en, the Solidarity Express underscored how conjoined forces of global power structure indigenous Palestinian oppression in distinct yet similar ways. The acts of solidarity re 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 reignited in 2020 commenced what I conceptualize as resurgent solidarity. Resurgent solidarity occurs at specific political moments, often during times of crisis, and it represents a commitment to building and renewing relationships between people and movements with similar histories of oppression and exploitation. Radical resurgent solidarity is more than short-term alliance or coalition. It is rooted in deeper histories of relationality or intended to build longer-term strategic relationships between radical, movement, radical movements and peoples based on principal stances that advance political struggles necessitating ethical practices of support. Such resurgent solidarity is to use Robin D.G. Kelly's words, I quote, not merely spontaneous response to coincidental and spectacular violence, but a result of years of organizing, end quote. During the shutdown Canada demonstrations, it was analogous to the resurgence of the Black Palestine solidarity to, to Black the Black Palestine solidarity evident during the 2014 Ferguson Gaza convergence, when um, which was itself rooted in a long history of Black and Palestinian internationalism. The resurgence of Indigenous Palestinian solidarity in the Canadian context was also rooted in a 50-year um, history of radicalism, specifically starting during the era of the Red Power, um, uh, the Red Power movement. I'm not going to actually get into that history, the 50 years of history of solidarity in in the in the talk, particularly because there's so much to cover. So if anybody has questions, I can I can discuss that later. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll move on now to sort of the next part, which is that while activists and scholars have made comparisons and often they can be very generative, they can also be very reductive. And that's what I'm trying to ad address by arguing the similarities, um, that similarities cannot be collapsed. And so in doing so, I, I um, dive into the literature around settler colonialism um, around both geographies to try to show the ways in which they are distinct because we know the ways they are similar and I'll mention those today but I really want us to understand um, that they also have di distinct um, features particularly in the way the Canadian state came to be and the way the Israeli state came to be. 
So going back to the 18th and 17th and 18th centuries, prior to the formation of the Canadian state, European colonizers relied on slave labor to build infrastructure and wealth for white settlers in Canada, with some 4,000 indigenous known as panis and black people enslaved in New France and the British colonies in the pre-Confederation period. In those colonies, the slavery system, which was both gendered and racialized, never took the form of large-scale plantations like those in the U.S., the, uh, the U.S. South, the Caribbean, or South America. As the Métis historian Howard Adams has shown, during the fur trade era, roughly the 17th to mid-19th centuries, Indian communal society was transformed into an economic class of laborers by European fur trading companies, particularly the Hudson's Bay Company, because businessmen of Europe realized they would need a large supply of labor to obtain resources. Natives furnished this large supply of cheap labor, and so did other racialized communities. As the fur trade flourished, so did Indian slavery. Although their theories differ from one another, settler colonial studies scholar, scholars Patrick Wolfe and Lorenzo Versini theorize settler colonialism is premised on the elimination rather than the mere exploitation of the native. Wolf vividly theorizes how settler colonialism operates through the logic of elimination, whereby settlers destroy to replace indigenous people whose lands they convert rather than their labor and or by assimilation. While the concept of elimination is essential to theorizing native genocide as structural, the less known history of black and indigenous slavery in Canada, albeit small in scale compared to the other um, uh, geographies I've mentioned, shows that settler colonial demand for land did not completely ellipse the demand for labor in the pre-Confederation period. This was also the case of the other settler colonies, such as South Africa, Algeria, Southern Rhodesia, and Kenya, where settlers came to stay and wanted both the land and native later, labor, but not the people, as Robin Kelly reminds us. They sought to eliminate stable communities and their cultures of resistance. In Canada, the reliance on Indigenous labour shifted after the era of the fur trade because Indigenous labour was no longer central to the accumulation of capital as the industrial economy emerged. During the rise of industrial capitalism at the beginning of the 19th century, the absence of a large-scale pool of plantation-based slave labour led to the recruitment and use of what Ico Day has termed alien labour. Composed of mostly Black and Asian people, this racialized labor force experienced the exclusion, exploitation, expulsion, deportation, and disposability inherent to racial capitalism. Cedric Robinson reminds us that capitalism was a continuation of early European social orders that pronounced racial hierarchies and class structures, such as feudalism and racialism, which were exported to the rest of the world by Europe's colonial enterprise and evolved to produce a modern world system of racial capitalism. Thus, when using the settler colonial lens, it is necessary to integrate the particular analytic of racial capitalism, since it provides ways of understanding capitalist forms of dispossession that profit from and reinforce class hierarchies, patriarchal formations, and racist ideologies. European Jews were among the first racialized subjects of European racism and proletarianization to face persecution and erasure. In the 19th and early 20th century, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, many of them left Europe's shores in the first major wave of Zionist immigration to Palestine during the decades before Israeli state formation. While there, has, while there had always existed a small Jewish population in Ottoman Palestine, Jewish immigrants who arrived in Ottoman and later mandate Palestine during the so-called first Aliyah from 1881 to 1903 hired cheap Arab labor on which they were deeply reliant. 
during the second Aliyah from 1904 to 1919. However, the settlers who founded labor Zionism and became leaders of the Zionist movement talked about the conquest of labor, a strategy for Jewish labor to replace indigenous Arab labor that envisioned the complete economic and spatial segregation of Jews and Arab communities in Palestine, with Jews gradually, gradually replacing the country's indigenous inhabitants, as, as explained by Zachary Lockman, one of labor Zionism's foremost scholars, Gerson Sheffer, um, who characterized this model as a separatist, separatist method of pure settlement in that it sought the creation of a homogenous, autonomous settler society that did not significantly depend on, indeed, that sought to exclude indigenous labor. The principle of Jewish labor eroded after 1967, mainly as a result of Israel incorporating a cheap Palestinian labor force from the occupied Palestinian territories into its economy, thereby further undermining Palestinian economic self-sufficiency. Burgeoning scholarship in settler colonial studies accentuates colonialism as it should, but it does not sufficiently address how capitalist demands for labor in the development of settler capitalist economies intersected with the logic of elimination. This is a necessary linkage as settler colonial state formation and ongoing settler colonialism was and is not possible without the racial capitalism um, that is founded in violence, forced labor regimes and slavery, as well as imperialism, genocide and patriarchy. The heterogeneity of racial positions anchored the distinction between settler colonial logics of natives, the natives elimination from the land and his or her socioeconomic exclusion as exploited labor, underscoring that the two are not mutually exclusive, but are dialectically connected. In the latter half of the 18th century, European settlers and indigenous nations negotiated treaties in what is now Canada. Anishinaabe legal scholar John Burroughs asserts that the British Crown formulated the 1763 Royal Proclamation and 1764 Treaty of Niagara, acknowledging Aboriginal rights and the title to land, and articulating a nation-to-nation -nation relationship based on principles of coexistence, peace, friendship, and respect free of external interference. Despite these treaties, in the period of uh, 17 to 1900s, colonial policies were implemented to obliterate these treaties and um, uh, obliterate various indigenous nations through the spread of um, disease, which killed half the native population, and by deliberately starving the people of the plains to make way for the CN National Railway, which was built again, as I mentioned earlier, on the extraction of surplus racialized and primarily Asian labor. Following Canada's state formation in 1867, the Racist Indian Act adopted by the federal government in 1876 violated treaty obligations and effectively authorized Indigenous genocide using the law. It designated reserve lands, legislated a pass system, created Indian status through sexist provisions that limited claims to indigeneity, and attempted to extinguish Indigenous self-governance structures with the Indian Band Council system. The act also attempted to assimilate Indigenous people by extinguishing cultural practices and placing Indigenous children in church-run residential schools and during the 1960s into the child welfare system. In, mandate, in British Mandate Palestine, which preceded Israeli state formation, the Zionist project sought to acquire land through purchases undertaken by Zionist land corporations such as the Jewish National Fund and the Palestine Jewish Colonization Association. The Zionists used both legal and illegal course of measures to obtain transfers of land from Palestinians, and they sponsored mass immigration of European Jews to Palestine. 
Unlike other settler projects, the Zionist project did not have an imperial metropole, although it was heavily supported by imperial powers, particularly Great Britain. The ideology of Zionism rested on the creation of an ethno-national Jewish homeland, and in the early years, collective land ownership was fundamental to that project, unlike other settler colonies where ownership of land was based on locking ideas of private property um, and ownership intertwined with profit. Brenner Bander suggests that the notion of Volk as being of the land rooted in the soil of their national homeland forms the basis for entitlement to a state based on their natural ties to the territory, thus differentiating political Zionism from other settler projects. Since the Zionist project could not fulfill its ideologies through land, its ideology um, through land purchases or the 1947 UN partition plan, in 1948, Zionist militias conquered, dispossessed and ethnically cleansed 85% of the Palestinian population, destroying over 400 villages, cities and towns and usurping vast expanse of Palestinian land in what has now been called or has been called um, the El Nekba. A, primary peasant, a primarily peasant population became refugees, many of whom were subsequently proletarianized in a process that the logic of elimination does not capture adequately, um, and specifically for those that became refugees. Treaty agreements between the Canadian state and Indigenous people gestures to the fact that prior to state formation, coexistence agreements were made with Indigenous nations as part of the European settler strategy to access territory, even though these nations were eventually folded into settler structures following genocide and the privatization of lands collectively held by Indigenous nations. Although official discourse about reconciliation dates back to 1998, since 2015, the Canadian state has called for renewed relationships of coexistence based on mutually agreed principles that have been strongly criticized by Indigenous scholars and activists. In the case of Palestine, racial purity and segregation was fundamental to the actualization of an ethno-national Jewish state. The desire for Jewish homeland precluded integration, assimilation, and coexistence with the indigenous inhabitants requiring what the late Palestinian historian Fayez Sayag calls the racial elimination of the native. Sayag suggests that the difference between the Zionist settler regime and other European settler regimes was that the former required the racial elimination of the native, while the latter required racial discrimination achieved through supremacist notions of inferior natives and the expression of supremacy over inferior races within the framework of hierarchical racial coexistence, which was not necessarily eliminatory. Shireen Saikali and Max Agel argue that Zionist ideologues agreed with the racialized views of Jews as Europe's internal others, but they turned it on its head arguing that even if a low race, Jews were capable of, love uplift, of uplift and in need of cleansing. Such a vision combined two contradictory strands. On the one hand, the salvation of the Jews through deracination and the approximation um, to whiteness. And on the other hand, the salvation of the idea of Europe by the, by the Jews departure from its shores and their arrival in Palestine. As Nahla Abdu and Nira Yuval Davis emphasized, the Zionist project was primarily a movement of European Ashkenazi Jews who constituted a majority of settlers before 1948 and continued dominating the state after its establishment. Once the state was declared, Zionism secularized and nationalized Judaism, as, and as Arakat reminds us, crafting a modern new Jew from the old religious Jew modeled on white European enlightenment ideas, values, and culture in a deliberate counterpoint to the Eastern cultural markers carried by Mizrahi Jews, as well as Muslim and Christian Arab Jews. Mizrahi Jews in Israel were consequently forced to purify themselves of their ethnic, linguistic, and cultural constitution. And so Mizrahi Jews end up being the Arab Jews from um, within the Arab region or African Jews um, that are um, from Eritrea or Ethiopia that, um, that, that, 
that are, you know, that can settle in Israel. Thus, in both settler societies, colonizers use race to manage and eliminate their native population um, as political and legal entities, albeit in distinct ways, where Canada enforced assimilation through the residential school system um, and other practices, Israel imposed racial purity, complete separation. Unlike other settler jurisdictions where title and land rights have been recognized by the state of Israel, the Supreme Court, of Can the Supreme Court has rejected any such possibility preventing Palestinians from claiming recognition of their land rights. In Canada, by contrast, the settler state recognized and affirmed Aboriginal title to land and treaty rights in Section 35 of the 1982 Constitution Act. Following decades of First Nations resistance, though these constitutionally recognized rights are limited, as corporate and state interests can gain access to Indigenous land basis whenever they like. And we see this with all of the sort of ways that the conversations are going with the pipeline. Another distinction between the two geographies pertains to military rule and governance. In Canada, militarized policing has been used to incarcerate, repress, surveil, and uh, criminalize people of color, Indigenous people, and their resistance, with the Canadian army sometimes deployed against Indigenous nations. In Palestine, Israel, Palestinians who remained inside Israel after the establishment of the state lived under military rule from 1948 until 1966. And since 1967, the Israeli state has occupied the West Bank the Gaza, uh, and, and Gaza and governed the OPT under martial law. In Canada, the dominant instrument used in indigenous elimination for territorial expansion has been biological and cultural warfare rather than military occupation. Whereas Canada granted indigenous people citizenship in 1960, Palestinians are not deemed citizens of the state of the occupied territories there because it isn't a state. Um, there, the Israeli occupation regime routinely demolishes Palestinian homes and buildings, implementing de facto land annexation via settlement expansion while indefinitely imprisoning, imprisoning Palestinians under a military court system and enforcing a siege on Gaza, which is illegal under international law. Since Canadian citizenship contradicts and undermines Indigenous sovereignty, some Indigenous nations, such as the Haudenosaunee, for example, have overtly refused what Audra Simpson calls its gifts. They insist on the in integrity of their own systems of governance because the logic of elimination rendered this right of citizenship conditional on the abandonment of Indian status and accompanying rights to live on a reservation. Nevertheless, and despite the state's imposition of Canadian law and Indigenous peoples, Indigenous legal systems have to survived intact to some degree and continue to be upheld as in the case with the Wet'suwet'en. By contrast in Israel, the law has bifurcated Israeli citizenship and nationality in the, work, in the, words, of Adaka, in the words of Adaka. In order to ensure Jewish nationalism, national rights have been extended only to Jewish citizens inside the 1949 armistic lines, but not to Palestinian ones. As for the Palestinians living in the occupied territories, they have neither citizenship nor nationality rights, only travel documents issued by the Palestinian Authority, a pseudo state that enjoys no actual sovereignty, while hundreds of thousands of Palestinians continue to live in other countries as stateless refugees. Such distinctions notwithstanding, settler colonialism in both contexts has been structured in also analogous ways on the basis of land apparatus, land theft, dispossession, restricted movement, segregation, national status, gendered and sexual violence, resource extraction, and racialized labor exploitation, policing, and incarceration. Settler colonialism is a framework 
is on the one hand um, beneficial in analyzing distinct forms of colonization and methods of structured dispossession. It has reoriented scholarship and activism, making it far more comprehensive, encompassing in the Palestinian case, Palestinians living inside Israel, as well as in the occupied territories, as well as those living in the diaspora. Yet the limitations of this framework gesture to the need for other ana analytic lenses drawn not only from Palestine and indigenous studies, but also from black studies, ethnic studies, Marxist feminist studies, which have also theorized capitalist expansion, resistance, solidarity, settler decolonization, abolition, and liberation. As argued by Rana Barakat, settler colonial studies scholars tend to accentuate the language of triumph of the settlers and failure of the native, which is limited when conceptualizing and theorizing resistance. The settler colonial analytic privileges a settler narrative that undermines indigenous resistance, and in the case of Palestine, for example, erasing Palestinian resistance and endurance and sumud, what Palestinians call steadfastness. And so Barakat consequently urges us to accompany the settler colonial analytic with also thinking about Palestine and indigenous studies and the analytics it can provide. Furthermore, an indigenous settler binary dominates scholarly work with even within some of the fields alluded to above, obfuscating the myriad factors that structure power relations, which in turn pervade political organizing and foreclose formations of radical solidarity and co-resistance on a mass scale. One of the limitations of the indigenous settler binary is its elision of capitalist imperialism and war, both of which have precipitated an international refugee crisis and global migration. Adam Barker, Benita Lawrence, Ina Dua, Candice Fujiyama, Jonathan Okamura, and Patrick Wolf all of whom deploy this binary in their work suggests that non-natives are settler colonists and are occupiers. And in the specific context of Canada, Lawrence and Dua have claimed that all people of color are settlers. Barker views immigrants as seeking enhanced privileges, thereby conflating European settlers with immigrants and refugees. Along the same lines, uh, Wolf has also claimed that settler identity is structural and it therefore also applies to enslaved people who are dispossessed against their will. Interrogating the indigenous settler binary, Nandita Sharma challenges the way that negatively racialized people, Black, Latinx, uh, Asian, have been excluded from white settler projects and particularly migrants who are increasingly depicted as colonizers. Her analysis questions the politics of autochrony espoused by these scholars wherein migrants are perceived as barriers to both white settler sovereignty and indigenous sovereignty. The indigenous settler binary at times flattens various people's histories and it obfuscates the dialectical social relations of settler colonialism, racial capitalism, and imperialism on a global scale in which the key di historical dynamics have been exploitation, expropriation, enclosure of the commons, dispossession, displacement, and involuntary movement across geographies. Delinking binaries from slavery, imperialist occupations, and wars and other settler projects obscures capitalism's global and violent transnational character. The conflation of migration with colonization is some, in some of the scholarship denies the migratory histories of indigenous people, particularly from the global south and the structural violence they have endured. Imperialism is not an abstract category. It extends state power through the acquisition of territory. In some instances, it is an inherent feature of modern state formation. And it is also a system of capitalist accumulation through financialization, labor exploitation, wage arbitrage, wage deflation and war all of which cause dispossession and migration. The border is a crucial pillar of modern day racial capitalism, which the settler colonial analytic rarely addresses. 
Harsha Walia suggests that the border is a spatial fix for capitalist accumulation. Settler states depend on an exploitable cheap labor force brought in from elsewhere, primarily the global south, and those people become subjects of settler state violence, deportability, incarceration, exploitation, and death. The conflation of migra migration with colonization conceals violence and is simplistic and problematic because in most instances, refugees and migrants who arrive and settle in settler states do not bring a collective sovereignty with them that is connected to an imperial metropole, nor do they seek to destroy existing indigenous life and political orders through um, their arrival. In Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang incorporate slavery in their analytic of settler colonialism, terming this the settler native triad, and they briefly mention the role of US empire in displacing people from elsewhere. Conceptually speaking and similarly to theorists who deploy the binary, they twofold the experiences of migrants and refugees who are subjects of imperialism, war, and capitalist uh, violence into the subject position of settlers considered to occupy indigenous lands. Such formulations obliterate the indigeneity of migrants and refugees, turning them into settlers, which severs their relationship to their own lands and communities. The binary and triad frameworks at times erases the settler from other people's histories. Some migrants and refugees constitute what neighbor calls and terms the diasporas of empire, wherein the subject of imperialism resides within the imperialist state and the empire and its subject subjects exist in a transnational and contemporary frame encapsulated viv vividly in the saying, we are here because you were there. Yet Tuck and Yang argue that by virtue of their resettlement, these imperial subjects struggles are incommensurate or incompatible with decolonization struggles in North America. While the two authors do suggest that settler colonialism fuels imperialism around the globe, they collapse the space-time distinctions between the colony and metropole if settler colonialism in North America were to be placed within the spatio-temporal context of capitalist imperialism abroad, how might we see these structures and social relations as moving but conjoined parts of the imperial present? What would holding settler colonial empire and diaspora within the same spatio-temporal frame imply for those structurally dispossessed, like the Palestinians, or for decolonization struggles and liberation movements? How would these struggles necessitate one another? In Canada, and Pal in Canada, Palestinian leftists express a poetics of relation with other colonized and exploit commu exploited communities across Turtle Island, particularly indigenous people. Although they're forcefully dispossessed by Israeli settler colonialism and various forms of capitalist violence, they describe themselves as participants in a set of social relations embedded within a racialized colonial state hierarchy that enables them to benefit from settlement and citizenship in the Canadian state. During an interview, Palestinian refugee and feminist Mayella asserted, I quote, maybe you can hold one thing, maybe you can hold more than one thing to be true at the same time. I'm a displaced person. I think of myself as a third generation Palestinian refugee. I'm not able to return to my homeland, though I would very much love to. And I'm a Canadian citizen, holder of a Canadian passport that benefits from being on this land. So it's important to hold the government to account when they violate indigenous sovereignty, end quote. For Palestinians like Ella, that is signaling or it, um, this is a signaling of the moral and political responsibility to principally act in material ways against structural violence perpetuated by the colonial state while contending with their dual positionality as subjects of multiple colo settler colonialisms, 
a subject of Israeli settler colonialism and beneficiaries of settlement in, Ca in Canadian settler colonialism. Most displaced Palestinians arrived in Canada as refugees and or migrants from different geographical areas and class backgrounds through the Canadian immigration system acquiring refugee or citizenship status inside the colonial state. For many, immigration was not a choice and upon arrival, they become part of the diaspora of empire. Nevertheless, there is no homogenous identification that diaspora Palestinians in Canada have vis-a-vis -vis indigenous people or the Canadian state. Some people mainly leftists self-ascribe as racialized settlers, while other, others view themselves as subjects of colonial and imperialist dispossession who did not come to Canada voluntarily and have no nation state to which they can return to just yet. Still others consider Canada complicit in the Zionist colonization of Palestine and subsequent Palestinian dispossession because of the prominent role Canada played in the 1947 UN partition plan and, in, and, and was influenced by the interests of the Zionist lobby and its Western allies and allegiance that continues to this day. These Palestinians view their present their presence on stolen land as a consequence of shared imperialist intimacies between settler projects that structure the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Some cannot conceive of themselves as settlers because of what an Israeli settler is to them, their colonizer. Yet others remain ambivalent about their position. Palestinian stance is very based on ideology, class interests, political orientations, historical knowledge, and generational differences. However, many have yet to contend with their positionalities as beneficiaries of settlement on stolen lands. Moal Qasim, a Palestinian refugee and activist says, I quote, we need to acknowledge Palestinian, we need to acknowledge this, Palestinians cannot absolve their responsibility. He explains that a large segment of the Palestinian diaspora in Canada remains publicly apolitical because of fear of state surveillance, deportation, and incarceration under Canadian terrorism laws that criminalize resistance and even charitable giving, and that can lead to travel bans for forfeiture of employment, freezing of bank accounts, defamation, and Zionist harassment. In addition to fears, desires for upward mobility and the bourgeois class interests of elite Palestinians and Arab aspirations to whiteness and identification with capitalism, nurture neoliberal individualism and proximity to the Canadian state, producing political apathy in terms of action, whether for Palestinian liberation or the liberation of others. Robin D.G. Kelly reminds us that political organizing is already difficult work within communities, that solidarity between people and movements is a contingent political project rather than some kind of natural, essential, trans-historical alliance or racial imperative. Therefore, solidarity cannot be assumptive, but has to be built politically. Palestinian leftists urge their community to acknowledge the benefits of settlement and emphasize that Palestinians also resist settler colonialism in North America and not exempt themselves from the struggles that are taking place here in Turtle Island. And so for both the indigenous and Palestinian political struggles, transforming the colonial configuration of power has required organized anti-colonial resistance to capitalist economic relations and forced dispossession. Um, lastly, any analysis that deploys a settler colonial framing must contend with the emerging class differences within settler societies. Neoliberalism has reinforced class hierarchies in which some bourgeois natives have become collaborators with their colonizers based on their shared market interests across settler states. We must therefore ask how do, we, how do the current classifications and categories within the settler colonial framework reinscribe colonial logics and reproduce race and class? 
I push back against the notion of settler triumph in settler colonial studies also by showing the ways in which the two colonial geographies that I'm talking about today, Palestine, Israel, um, and Canada, have also had decades of anti-colonial resistance, which has accelerated, which accelerated economic crisis and ushered in processes of negotiation. In Canada, it was reconciliation, and in Palestine, it was peace negotiations. I argue that these processes have caused an ideological shift with the veneer of reconciliation or peace, replacing the focus on colonial relationships to, um, in order to keep the settler capitalist economy thriving through continuous resource extraction, land confiscation and dispossession. Between, and now I wanna just take us back historically, between 1973 and 1985, Israel was engulfed in an unprecedented economic slowdown with annual inflation at 3%. During the same period, Palestinian resistance was conducted mainly in the form of armed struggle by the Lebanon-based PLO, after Israel, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, after Israel drove the PLO out of Lebanon in 1982, Palestinian resistance shifted to mostly civil mobilization inside the occupied territories that culminated into the first Intifada in 1987. During that uprising, the Israeli state confronted a mass insurgency and a regional Arab boycott, as well as um, uh, a regional air boycott, as well as anti-capitalist and economic self-reliance initiatives. Um, these initiatives included the boycott of Israeli goods and jobs, a commercial strike, a tax revolt, a large-scale return to agriculture, and the emergence of what Raj, uh, Raja Khalidi has termed the household economy. This combination of factors deepen Israel's economic crisis, compelling the Zionist state to develop strategies to control the ungovernable population. Israel's capitalist interests also viewed the pacification of the Palestinians as a necessary condition in stopping political unrest from worsening the economic um, situation. To mitigate the high cost of the occupation, vast military spending, air boycotts, impediments to foreign investment, the following measures were advanced to st stem the crisis and end to direct military rule in the OPT by subcontracting security to a subservient Palestinian authority, the surveillance and restriction of Palestinian movement through a system of closures, permits, checkpoints, and roadblocks, the cantonization of Palestinian communities into Bantustan-style Bantustan enclaves on the South African model, and an expansion of settlement construction. All of these have continued apace to the present day. In the 1990s, Israel had neoliberalized its economy and entered into negotiations with the Palestinians. Regional and global power shifts such as the fall of the Soviet Union, the first Gulf War, and the embrace of neoliberalism across the Middle East also weakened the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which in turn shifted away from a revolutionary approach to liberation and embraced the neoliberal order ushered in by the Oslo Peace Accords. The Oslo process further consolidated settler colonialism, deepened Israeli military control over Palestinian life, and outsourced securitization to an indigenous police force. Aggressive Israeli settlement expansion coupled with neoliberal restructuring and the entrenchment of an international aid industry in the OPT resulted in the apartheid system that has emerged under the guise of limited Palestinian autonomy um, in the OPT, generating extreme forms of inequality, racialized marginalization, advanced securitization, and constant crisis. A decade or so later, the Israeli state faced another economic crisis in the wake of the Second Intifada launched by the Palestinians in 2010. A growing, a growing consensus among the Israeli capitalist class, the US government and the European Union urged a political solution to the Second Intifada. 
In Canada in 1960 um, and 1970s, red power militancy and activism also created a sense of political uh, urgency in the colony. Glenn Coulthard suggests that the three watershed events shaped indigenous activism in this period. First, the widespread opposition of the 1969 white paper, which set off an unprecedented degree of political mobilization. Second, there was the Calder versus British Columbia decision, which led the hereditary chief of the NISCA to launch a lands claim case in the courts, establishing that they had never surrendered title to their homelands. And third, there was widespread resistance to resource extraction and energy sector development in the wake of the 70s oil crisis. With various indigenous nations engaging in anti-colonial resistance to the state and the energy events and the energy industry. These events ushered in Canadian government policies geared towards Indigenous recognition and so-called reconciliation. Like the Israeli economy during the 70s, Canada was plagued by stagflation, high levels of unemployment, and a slowdown in the rate of economic growth. The increase in oil prices contributed to the slowdown, causing GDP to fall. After 1973, business capital spending to decrease and the price of key commodities produced by Canada to decline. To boost economic growth and prosperity, the Canadian state developed policies based on capitalist intensive resource extractive industries to which Indigenous activism presented an obstacle. In the late 1980s, Glenn Coulthard argues that the rise of First Nations militancy and land-based direct actions disrupted and impeded, I quote, con impeded constitutional flows of racialized capital and state power from entering and leaving Indigenous territories, end quote. The widespread economic disruption intensified by direct action, indigenous militancy and mass insurgencies produced political economic crises that provoked both states, Canada and Israel to enter into negotiations with indigenous nations and Palestinians in an effort to maintain settler sovereignty and dominant capitalist economies. In Canada, the state's approach to indigenous resistance has shifted under the recent government of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, which has fully embraced the politics of recognition and its accompanying spectacle of reconciliation, shifting the focus away from indigenous land claims and sovereignty to shared and cultural recognition, to shared history and cultural recognition. This is why the Wet'suwet'en refusal of extractive industry projects such as the coastal gasoline pipeline and the ensuing economic shutdown of Canada has been so significant. They expose the veneer of reconciliation what, for what it is and have pronounced reconciliation dead. In the case of Israel, the Trump plan explicitly revealed itself as an economic plan that simply perpetuates land theft, dispossession, and settlement construction, consolidates apartheid, and liquidates Palestinian aspirations to a state, self-determination, and return. Mass Palestinian rejection of the plan exposes peace for the facade it has been for a long time, yet in the way that Oslo's Oslo's impact continues to linger, linger, even after the process has repeatedly been pronounced de dead, the effect of the Trump plan on the ground is impeding to de jure Israeli annexation of the OPT that will devastate Palestinian lives. An indigenous delegation, a feminist delegation from Toronto that traveled to Palestine in 2018, witnessed the preemptive logics of the Trump plan and its Israeli corollary in the annexation plan. They observed the ongoing theft of water and land in the Jordan Valley and elsewhere, home demolitions and dispossession of Palestinians at Khan al-Ahmar, the closure of Palestinian roads linking Jerusalem to the West Bank, the relocation of the US embassy to Jerusalem, the increased Judaization of Palestine's topography, the expansion of Israeli settlements and the racialized terror enforced against Palestinians. 
The delegations Indigenous feminists from Six Nations learned about the economic resistance strategies that Palestinians deploy to remain on their lands, even amid the occupation and the self-reliance um, and steadfast practices they follow. The history of anti-colonial resistance across these colonial geographies underscores the importance of organized resistance and its ability to disrupt settler capitalist economies, as well as the tactics and discourses, such as reconciliation and peace used by nation states to suppress and pacify defiant opposition. While such tactics have at times been supported by bourgeois indigenous Palestinian leaders who have fortified their commitments to liberatory politics and have adopted an individualistic and neoliberal approach to decolonization that further settler colonial capitalism, social movements nevertheless continue to critique and defy them and build alternatives. And so I wanna just close with my thinking around a praxis of solidarity with global powers joining forces to structure Capitalist violence, the past 50 years have offered many lessons from which to glean political insight, particularly the affirmation that joint struggles in the form of direct action and popular resistance to disrupt settler economies are effective. Radical resurgence solidarity is thus an urgent and necessary political project in the contemporary moment. As violence under the guise of peace and reconciliation intensifies in Canada, murders against Black life, counterterrorism discourses that attack Muslims and Arabs and South Asians, and the violence goes on and on and on. Based on shared principles of liberation, demanding a commitment to mutual self-determination and collective visions for the transformation of society, resurgent solidarities are necessary aspects of core resistance. They require the adoption of a joint uh, struggle approach that necessitates economic disruption, disruption, material and symbolic support, radical visions, as well as cultural production to sustain our spirits amid violence, in addition to a politics that does not collapse distinct histories and contextual specificities through frameworks of sameness. Activists and movements should also be mindful of their differential locations and of complicity entailing in advancing colonial and neoliberal politics of recognition and peace. Radical solidarity requires activists and movements not to engage in heteropatriarchal, gendered, sexual, and racial violence towards each other or in red washing, um, assumptive solidarity, tokenism, neoliberal individualism, oppress oppression Olympics, and colonial exceptionalism. Radical solidarity envisions world making, to use Robin Kelly's term, rather than nation state building, it, imagine, it imagines a world beyond borders, nationalisms, and all forms of violence, a horizontal form of connection that is non-hierarchical and anti-oppressive, that envisions an alternative apart from property relations in order to remake the world. History has taught us that when solidarity is rooted in a radical politics of internationalism, we are able to connect global power structures and their regimes of violence transnationally and work towards remaking global life by unifying peoples, movements, and political projects beyond borders, from Wet'suwet'en to Palestine and the rest of the global south. In this time of intensified resource extraction, territorial expansion, and state violence, more is required of us to continue imagining alternatives, building, and making another world all together and all together. Thank you.